Hello, everyone, and welcome. If you're hearing something different in your earbuds today, it's because Derek is not with us. Instead, I am joined today by the wonderful Julian Shapiro. Hey, dude. Hey, man. How's it going? It's going great. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I actually mentioned your name explicitly in recent weeks because one of the things I'm doing is um, more or less ripped off directly of uh, some of the work you've done in the past. So it's like great for me to be able to go to the source. Yeah, so the reason that I invited you on is because I'm trying to come up with my uh, plans for Marketing Tuple for like the next handful of months. Uh, my other two co-founders are focusing on dev work right now. And so I've got the bandwidth and I've for a while admired how you do things like content marketing and growth stuff. And so I wanted to bring you on and uh, see what you thought of my plan. Awesome. Yeah, I look forward to it. And I appreciate anyone who's willing to put the same level of detail and thought into content marketing. And I think it, it's usually because you actually enjoy the process. I've seen few people do it who did not love it. And so when I find someone else who loves it, sort of a kindred spirit, it's really fun to talk shop about the, the lesser known sort of growth tactics that I have applied to my own content marketing on julian.com, which I'd be more than happy to divulge as much as I can of. Yeah, I'm excited to talk through that. And I, I hope to achieve your level. Honestly, that's like where I'm aspiring. Um, the guides you have on there are kind of like ridiculously thorough and beautiful. And just like it's, it's clear you, you cared so much. And that's, that's what I'm drawing inspiration from. That's the bar I'm trying to hit. Um, but maybe I should zoom out a little bit and catch people up. So I sent before this podcast, I sent you sort of a summary of the context and what my rough plan was. And I'll just summarize that real fast for people, which is, okay, if you're listening to the pod, you, you sort of know what's going on. I'm focusing on marketing. And what I said to Julian was, I sort of sat down and thought about, okay, what should I do for marketing in the next handful of months? And at first, I started making a list of like tons and tons of different things I might do. And then I kind of found myself settling more and more into kind of doubling down on this pair programming guide. So I launched it nine days ago. It's already doing quite well. It hit uh, one of the articles hit uh, the front page of Hacker News overnight, getting a decent amount of people of shares and people excited about it. And my goal with that is to make it the best pairing guide on the internet. And it's not there yet. So I was thinking maybe what I do for the next couple of months is just basically work on this like most days and try to really turn this thing into like an incredible asset. Like I'm trying to imagine that I build this thing that will throw off customers years from now and how good it has to be for that to be true. And that was kind of where I, I ended. So my, my email to Julian was like, okay, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Let's talk about it. And I, I'm curious what you think. Yeah, one interesting thing to think about is, so you'd mentioned the best pairing guide on the internet. I think that's how I started thinking about content on julian.com. I wanted to have the superlative. And I think at some point I realized it just has to be the best for my target audience. And so I have to go into writing a guide knowing full well what I want people to get out of it. And from there I can back into, well, who would be the type of person to get the most out of it in that way? And so if you're doing content marketing for the explicit purpose of getting someone to buy something from you, then that's a very different goal than what my goal on julian.com is, which is less um, sort of business conversion focused and more so affinity focused. So on julian.com, I'm trying to get people to a point where they're like, damn, this guy writes really well. I really enjoyed this and I want to read everything he has to say. And that's a very distinct goal from, for example, I just read this guide and I'm absolutely convinced I have to use this product that this guide's been talking about. So I, that, might be, that might be one place to start. 
affinity is probably more what I'm going for right now. So we don't have a product to sell to people yet. So like, there's no like sales pitch at the end of this. This is kind of more like I have a bit of an audience already. I'd like to be more bigger and more tuned into what I'm doing. And so if this gets people thinking, wow, the guys behind Tuple really know pairing and I learned a lot from them and I like and trust them, that might be enough right now. Do you agree that that's a reasonable goal given where we're at phase-wise? Uh, well, I do agree, first off, that content marketing in the form of in-depth guides is very effective. And it's obviously not a high-volume play, much like, say, scaling Facebook ads would be. Uh, instead, it's a, it's a high-affinity, low-volume play. And so I do agree that content marketing in guide form is very effective so long as you, in fact, are selling a, a product that fits into that mold of low volume, perhaps high affinity. When you translate the word high affinity and, low, and the phrase low volume over to business, over to a product, what I'm referring to explicitly is something like a B2B product, right? You have fewer users than say Facebook, which would be the B2C social app, right? So yes, I do think content marketing and guides are perfect for B2B, especially, actually most specifically when each person is worth quite a bit of money to you. If each person's worth a little bit of money because you don't charge very much for your service and it's low volume, then the metrics don't make sense. It's not positive ROI on your time, so to speak. So I would go heavy into marketing so long as you say have, I don't know, maybe several hundred dollars per year minimum sort of LTV, lifetime user value that you get from, from new users, from customers. That's all TBD until we, like, we, we do have some pre-sales, so I have a... I've had some indications of what people are willing to pay. We're, we're in that range, but it's we'll we'll see what actually happens once we're we're really in the market. But I, I want us to be expensive, ideally. Yeah, and, and what better way to justify a high expense than to walk someone through a narrative over the course of multiple pages and to use that narrative, to use that surface area of all that text as an excuse to inject your personality and make them trust and love you, right? And so that's what's so powerful about content marketing is it's uniquely capable of getting to that level of trust so that people will pay that relatively high price, especially if they've never heard of you before, meaning if you lack social proof, if you lack a logo wall on your homepage, just loving the person behind the product. It's hard for me to rattle off specific examples, but I know there are many. If you gave me a moment, I could come up with a few. So that's a very strong... Actually, the, the strongest example of this, right, would be sort of Kim Kardashian pushing her app or Kanye West pushing his shoes. You know, you, you love the person and now you're along for the narrative. This is, you're, they're, at, they're at a part in their life where this is what they're doing. And so someone like you, who not only is just going to be putting together a content marketing guide from scratch but actually has a pre-existing audience, a newsletter, a Twitter following, a network of other Twitter influencers or whatever. These are people who are, have been along for your journey and now will partake in this next step, meaning if they actually need uh, what you're building, they'll go ahead and use it. So I, I, the lesson there, I guess, for people listening is if you do want to get into content marketing or sort of long-form writing for the purpose of um, acquiring users, it's actually much more effective if you've been doing this for a while. And so if, if, if that's something you can foresee yourself doing, it's not a bad idea to just start today building a presence online, building a blog out and so on. 
Yeah, totally agree with that. I actually had a little tweet storm about this recently, which is if I was saying people, if, if you're a developer who might one day want to start a product or a SaaS, it's, there's almost nothing you could do right now that's better than starting to be useful on the internet and getting people who like and trust you building up that, that audience. Exactly. I singularly built my growth agency because I knew people who uh, were the right ones to go say, hey, we've had lunch. Um, I'm doing this thing. Would you be interested? They're like, yeah, why not? I trust you enough to at least hop on a call about it. Um, same thing is applied to uh, the open source animation engine I built. It was just a matter of like getting people to know what I'm up to now and then incrementally using that asset as further social proof. So I get a little bit of blog coverage, let people know about it, and then try to go to a slightly larger blog, let them know about the, the smaller blog coverage, say, hey, look, there's something trending here. I'm building something big and new in web animation. Uh, do you want to let me guest post for you so that I could do your work for you uh, and in return get some publicity? And you keep incrementing on that. And so if people just start with anything, um, a few people who are willing to read what they have to say, uh, you know, if it's any good, then that should snowball. Someone commented saying, I've been building the audience, but I don't have the product yet. And my response was like, that was me too, actually. It's like I was doing things in public and teaching for many years before I had something to sell. And then suddenly I had a thing and having that audience was so useful. And it sort of happened really fast. And it was like this asset I couldn't have built in a hurry. But because I had been doing it steadily, suddenly when I did need it, it was really useful. There's some really high leverage ways to look at that as well. So if you are trying to build an audience with an eye toward a certain market or job title, like if you're building an engineering audience versus building an audience of aspiring SEO experts, you can probably get a lot more leverage out of that engineering audience. They probably earn more, meaning they have higher purchasing power as individuals and on behalf of their employers because dev tools cost a lot of money sometimes. Uh, compare that to SEO tools uh, which are like 20 bucks a month. There's a couple of them. They, they're, they're undifferentiated. My point is some audiences are literally, you can point out how much more they can be monetized for whatever it is you want to build in the future. And so this kind of goes back to my very first point, which is the superlative is one thing. So trans transferring the superlative from content marketing over to audience would be having the biggest audience. But that's actually not nearly as valuable as having um, the highest quality audience. So if you take someone like, let's say, um, Gary Vaynerchuk, all right, Gary Vaynerchuk versus Tim Ferriss, whose audience is worth more? Definitely Tim's. Gary's playing up uh, this sort of, you know, hustlepreneur, like sort of entrepreneur ethos. And Tim's talking directly to a slightly more perhaps sophisticated or intellectual crowd, presumably higher purchasing power. I would rather have Tim's audience, despite possibly more people knowing about Gary Vaynerchuk. I might have that backwards. but So think about where you're headed and also think about what, how valuable is your current audience as an asset. And so in my case, building a growth agency, uh, it just turned out that I happened to build this audience of founders, actual startup founders, which is the right audience to engage a growth agency and pay that agency, you know, several thousand dollars per month. They were, that was absolutely within their purchasing power and within their budget. 
And so I could not have built something uh, to that scale as I have if my audience were, you know, aspiring writers, for example. Do a ton of your leads come from Julian.com stuff? Probably, let's say, at least half come from Julian.com. And probably the majority of the remainder at some point checked it out as a form of validating my credibility. And I know this because I almost never have a sales call that doesn't begin with them saying, hey, read the guide, loved it, or mentioning it in an email or yeah. So it happens all the time. That's such a powerful thing. Like even even like if they just skim it, they're like, okay, this guy cares enough about this topic to write so much about it and has clearly put some effort in. Check mark in my head that like he probably knows what's up. Exactly. That's actually that's actually really insightful. It's which is you're you're hitting at the tangential sort of proxies of competency that having something written well exudes. So it's not just a matter of is the content any good? It's is it tight? Is it like tightly written? Is it pretty? Is he hitting on at least the sort of hierarchy of topics to indicate that he has a broad, you know, depth of knowledge? And literally a quick skim, much to your point, uh, can be enough to accomplish that. For the first time, I've actually thought about this deeply, which is I'm pretty sure, based on the way my conversations have gone with sales leads, that maybe none of them have actually read the full thing. I think they've cherry-picked a couple of pages and like, okay, he knows his stuff. There's a lot. And I think almost like the, the lotness of it, the size of it, is like another just an indicator where it's like, okay, he takes this so seriously, he would write this much on this topic. All right, that's, that's hardcore. That's so much that I don't, I don't even need to read all of it, to, um, but I'm, I'm confident now. Yes. And that, however, is only half the picture. So if, for example, I'm a lead for, for my agency, for Julian's agency, and I'm going to Julian.com, and I'm looking at this, this like seven-page growth marketing guide breakdown. If I think I'm the only one reading it, that's probably not good enough, meaning as a whole, how much has this growth guide accomplished for getting me to go become uh, an agency client? It's accomplished some. It's demonstrated competency, but has it demonstrated awareness and actual adoption? Do I feel like people know of this person? And so I do something very intentional in the first page of my guide. And for, I guess for anyone unaware, essentially on Julian.com, I write guides that go in-depth on topics. And one of those guides is about growth marketing, which is, as you guys probably know, marketing with an emphasis on sort of measurable performance, doing things for the purpose of increasing revenue, not for the purpose of sort of scratching your back, uh, increasing brand awareness and so forth. So on, this, on the first page of this marketing guide, I think in the first couple of paragraphs, I inject the mention of my Twitter handle. So something like, do you not believe most garbage growth advice? Well, neither do I. I'm, fairly, I'm a fairly skeptical person. And then I take the I am part of that sentence and link to my Twitter handle. So I'm trying right off the bat to get people to go look at my Twitter account. And I'm not saying, hey, look at me. Um, I'm not injecting a logo wall of garbage that can be dismissed because uh, people will reflexively skim over logo walls, which are, you know, the collage of logos you'll see on most SaaS pages. Um, but I want them to go to my Twitter account because my Twitter account is a Twitter account is sort of groomed to look credible. So it has a few things going on, and I'm using them as proxies to demonstrate that I am a somebody off the bat. 
so that that hopefully lends credibility to not just my guide, but myself. So it wasn't actually that concerted to build a Twitter account that looks legitimate, but it did come, the second I noticed I had it, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm gonna leverage this. So specifically, there's the verified symbol, which is total nonsense. Like it doesn't mean anything, but most people don't think of it that way. The average person's like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, it's verified. Um, to real followers who are highly engaged with my tweets, if you look at any of my tweets, there are dozens of comments and whatever. So it's real people. It's clearly not bots. It, it helps build that, that credibility. And I do other things like that in the first page to say, yes, not only am I competent by virtue of this being a great guide, but everyone knows of me, you know, in quotes, and you are the last person to find out you're the one missing out on using me. You're the one who didn't know better until now. And that is a phenomenally powerful impression to give. Uh, and it translates very well to, say, the homepage to a SaaS product, where you very often want to give the same impression, which is, how did you only hear about this now? Everyone else is already raving about this, right? And that's a very strong reflex people react to. Interesting. You're triggering the FOMO. Well, it's like everyone has heard about this, but not me. They have something good. I don't have it. I got to jump on. So yeah, let's dive into uh, double. Uh, yeah. Um, so am I, am I pronouncing that right, by the way? Tuple or Tuple? It's actually Tuple. Ah, uh, Tuple. My bad. And yeah. everyone was listening. I mean, like, well, I, that's, not, that's not fair. We pronounce it Tuple. Tuple is a totally legitimate pronunciation of that word as well. So, All right. Uh, we'll go with Tuple. You're, you're clear either way. So I, I'm sort of curious what you think of this approach for me in general. Like if, if you were the CEO of Tuple all of a sudden and you were in my situation... Would you be focusing on on the same thing? Like I'm trying to I'm trying to find a, a like a KPI to guide my work for the next couple months. And the thing that I'm leaning towards is like how many new people did we add to our list of people that want to hear when we launch or hear about the pairing guide? Like how many people entered our email world? Would you do something similar? My sort of reflex there is why use an intermediary metric at all? Um, why not just focus on preparing for the actual launch? when tuple is live and putting as much effort as you can or at least from an 80 20 perspective into making that the best it can be so that when you do actually initiate user acquisition you're doing so without any intermediary steps such as hey subscribe to the waitlist hey i hope when i do send my launch uh, announcement that you actually remember why you subscribe and click through the link and still have the interest uh, I'd rather capture people's interest the moment they have it than introduce that interstitial and elongated period. So there's a sort of mythology of the Kickstarter-like crowdfunded launch where you build up all of this momentum and you get people excited about the future. But that works pretty well for crowdfunding because the way Kickstarter and Indiegogo um, promote projects internally on their own platform is they look for things that are spiking hard in the initial few days of launch. And that is what you accomplish by building up a buffer of an audience. But outside of that artificial environment, um, I haven't really found that sort of buildup to be as effective as just going cold turkey once it's open. So I would love to hear your thoughts and behind this process. I expect us probably never to do, maybe not never, but probably not have a big bang launch for quite a while where it's like, okay, the gates are open, everyone come in. I see us doing probably small batches of people with like lots of handholding and attention and all that for quite a while. 
and also I don't have a product to offer them today. So I, there has to be some sort of like holding period or something where it's like this person's interested in entering our world. They want to hear about when it actually is available, but I can't do anything today. So, so I'm curious what you meant by like, don't do the interstitial thing. So by that, I mean, let's say you have the option to launch today or to launch in a month and in the intervening 30 days, um, get people's emails and build up some hype for the upcoming launch. I'd always just launch today is my point. So, but I, but I think what I'm understanding is that's not your intention. I think what your intention is, you're basically saying, I'm not purposefully delaying launch like a crowdfunding model would be, but instead I'm trying to take advantage of the intervening time prior to my real launch. I want exactly. to get as much value as I can out of that. So I think the first thing to recognize is that's very unique. Um, like I don't think most companies or startups do that. I mean, certainly there are many, they're like Harry's and where they have a referral program that's very aggressive to get you excited prior to launch. But so let's first talk about what are you taking advantage of? What is it you are converting into a potential lead for Tuple? So like who's currently coming right now? Who's listening? Who cares currently? It's a dev tool and my audience is developers. So it's the people that seem most excited about it are developers that are remote and pair with their coworkers uh, a, a fair percentage of the time. And how are they coming across it? This podcast is definitely a big channel. Twitter a little bit too. But I, I, as I'm saying these things, I'm realizing I don't have good like data on that exactly. It's just a feeling. Okay, so what I'm driving at is if there's no real like significant volume of people expressing interest proactively um, prior to launch, typically I would just wait until launch to then try to drum it up. And other, because if I'm trying to think through my strategy now and it's only servicing a very small amount of people, I would rather think through a strategy that'll be more effective at the time of launch when, when like, the strategies can be made public and I can go aggressively acquire users through paid acquisition or whatever. So let me try to be more specific. So let's say, for example, I have 10 people a month coming to Tuple. I'm sure it's many more than that. But let's say I have 10 people coming per month and I'm thinking to myself, how do I take advantage of this? And free snapshot that, compare that to, um, I have 10 people coming a month. That is insignificant. I don't care about them. Instead, I'm going to be spending time I would have spent trying to capture them, building an awesome growth strategy that will launch the same time that my product launches. So that on day one of product launch, I will have something phenomenal built out. I will have written the guides. I will have prepared the ads on Facebook. I will have written my newsletter announcements. I will have partnered with newsletters that I'm friends with to get cross promotion and on and on and on. That's how I would normally think of it. But if that's not what you're thinking, I'm more than happy to sort of reshape my typical approach and we can dive in. I hadn't been thinking about like a, a big bang launch like that. I don't have super strong reasons for that it's just i was imagining sort of like one of our advantages as a small team is that we can give people a lot of, a lot of attention and do like a very handheld kind of onboarding and stay in a really tight feedback loop so i'm imagining like we launched this to so we have an alpha group of people i've pre-sold the product to like when we're ready to launch to them suddenly let's say 30-ish people are using this and i expect there to be 
a lot of feedback and improvements that need to be made and a lot of communication that has to happen. And so I wouldn't want to pour another 100 people, 200 people, whatever, into that while we're doing that. So I imagine it's kind of like release to a group, figure the bugs out, make it better, uh, release to another group and kind of repeat. And then eventually we reach some point where we're like, okay, we're, we've, we think we have all the major issues solved. Uh, let's expand the scope of the growth efforts a lot. That's a, that's a wonderful approach. And then this is sort of anticlimactic, but it sounds like you don't need a growth strategy then. It sounds like you just need a product strategy, which you have, and you need a method. Uh, you need some sort of marriage to methodology where you're going to iterate uh, in service of you know user experience, which you clearly have. Uh, and then growth is currently irrelevant, especially if you've already pre-sold, especially if you already have an existing audience that would love to test out Tuple and hear what you're up to. So I just, if that's the case, if if you're, if you're literally going to be bottlenecked by how many people you could. Um, happily service, uh, I do question whether th- there is a growth strategy currently beyond essentially one thing, which is the one thing that takes forever, meaning you do want to start a few months out, and that is content writing, which gets us back to the main topic, which is not only takes forever because the, the, the self-flagellation, the editing, you know, the, the, the perfectionism, all that stuff winds up 3xing how long you think it'll take to write. And from an SEO perspective, if that is something you care about, as I'm sure you know, there's like a three to four, maybe three to six month lag time after which you write something where it really has any chance of being on the homepage of Google for those for the corresponding search results. So uh, search terms. So I, I don't want to veer us too off track, though. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? And how can I be? Useful? Well, well, I mean, th- that feels like the opposite of, of off track to me. That actually feels like we have veered back to kind of my hypothesis, which is the best thing I can do right now is focus on content marketing. And yeah, building an awesome product that people love and content marketing, because there are very few other things in growth that actually take a long time. For example, I could spin up an ad campaign on any ad channel in under a week, write the, write the creatives, do the videos, all that stuff, right? Or write the copy, design the creative. So yeah, that, I mean, that sounds like a really wise decision. Also, um, if, you're, if you're building a product that people need a while to acclimate to. Like for example, if you're doing something like Tuple and let's say most people don't know why they would need or why they would care to do pair programming, then that is an obstacle you can beat down in the, in the intervening months prior to launch, right? Like that is, you can, you can push content out there to proactively address the objections people would have to using Tuple. And that is not just a matter for most people of um, reading something that attempts to change their mind, but it is usually also a matter of allowing time to pass just because of the way we are as humans. So if you get it, there's like this silly adage in marketing, which I don't think is true at all, which is like people on average don't really engage with a brand until they've been exposed to it seven times, something weird like that, but it's repeated all the time. But there is some truth to that as it pertains to changing someone's mind or, or getting them comforted with a new way of doing things like pair programming. So if you can drop these nuggets of wisdom of, uh, on, on pair programming over time and space it out, I think that's a very wise thing to do as well. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That, that's sort of like my vision for, or part of my vision for the pairing guide is that we are creating customers out of non-customers. 
where there are some developers that are interested in pairing, but they don't feel like they're confident enough to try it, or they're a little skeptical and they want to be convinced? I mean, in some respect, I'm trying to convince people to care more about growth marketing, right? And, and I'm doing that by showing them how to master aspects of it without much friction. So I give them a taste of what it's like to feel competency. That's really empowering. And then they want more of it and they want to become experts. And how do you become an expert? How do you, how do you introduce that expertise to your own company? Well, you hire a growth agency. Now that, I, now that you understand the value of growth marketing, right? Apply that to Tuple. Okay, wow, this is amazing pair programming. Uh, I am now going to evangelize this. Uh, and so there's, there's, this, there's probably similar behavior there. But what might be interesting to talk about, because I, I usually like to think of these things, if anyone else is listening, from the perspective of uh, like broadly sort of applicable advice. And I, I think one interesting segue there is, and I know it's probably not, it's not really nature of your podcast, but I think it's more like what you guys are up to. But what I think would be interesting, there's an intersection here. And the intersection that we're getting, getting to is how do you apply growth marketing to a giant piece of content, right? Because typically you're doing it in service of a landing page and, or like a physical product or a SaaS app. But a giant 100,000 word guide that takes four hours to consume that's a very different beast. There are very, very few examples of any enterprise trying to buy eyeballs to be driven towards something like that. You have the corollary is essentially ebooks or sort of content gated uh, sales collateral on LinkedIn, all that sort of you know PDF garbage um, where they introduce you to topics. And they're not very deep or very interesting, like white papers, which, which can be deep and interesting, but that's typically not what you get from a company trying to push you content. And my point is, that is one thing that does exist, but it's very different still from what you're doing, from what you're about to do, and from what I'm doing. So first interesting sort of takeaway here from my uh, experimentation with trying to promote guides like this is ads don't work at all. So like an argument could be made theoretically for, well, if it only costs $4 a click from Facebook, for example, and then they read the guide and like 5% convert and I'm making a thousand bucks a year with my SaaS product, well, the math should work out. But what happens is when you drive traffic to a guide, like one that I've written, uh, which is like seven pages on, on marketing, uh, it turns out nobody reads it. it. It's a very strange phenomenon where ad, tra- ad purchase traffic tends to actually be more engaged with like corporate landing pages than actually free reading material. It's so weird. I don't even have a good hypothesis for why, but I just wanted to introduce that surprise learning and and now we can shelve it. Uh, So how else can we think about uh, growth on, on giant guides? The most counterintuitive thing, so the most surprising thing to most people is when I present like a landing page to you, one of the first things you might say to me is beyond giving me some like cursory feedback, you might say, cool, now go A-B test it. And let's go find out if you've actually found the right value propositions and you're pitching tuple in the right way. That's sort of a no-brainer. But people, for some reason, don't apply that same sort of approach to giant guides. And so I find myself being the only person that I've spoken to uh, who does the following. I'll take the first two, three paragraphs on every page 
and swap them out entirely in an A-B test. They rewrite them entirely and then find out which introduction leads to having that page have the highest sort of rate of scroll depth, right? Which I can check on my analytics. That is huge. People write a page of a blog post or of a guide and never revisit, meaning never A-B test their approach. It stays, those same words are etched in blog stone for no mm. rational reason. They treat a blog post like it's any different from a landing page or an app onboarding flow. Not at all the case. It is, it is, it is a piece of content to be consumed just like anything else. And therefore it is a piece of content to be optimized. So, so what are those sort of like vectors of optimization? You got your intro, you got longevity. So maybe if you cut the page in half, cut out some fluff, see what that does to people reading the next page. Um, and then there's some, it's so like putting that sort of optimal, let me actually write off a few more things. So things like interjecting imagery, literally font size and column width. There's actually, that could have a real impact on usability. Um, but let's put that aside for a moment and think about what I think you might care most about, which is optimizing an epic guide for actually leading to product signups or mailing list, product, whatever. And a few pieces of advice there. Um, first, if you build it, they will not come, as you know, uh, and certainly applies to content marketing. Um, just because people loved your guide, it is zero indication that they will have spontaneously have the interest in learning more about you and your product and signing up. The reverse might be true, where if people first land on Tuple's landing page and then you link to your guide, like, oh, damn, this guy knows his stuff. I'm going to dive deep into this, fall in love with what he's talking about, come back to the product when I'm ready. That, that makes sense because it, from that perspective, the guide is being used as social proof. It's an asset. Yeah. You flip the perspective, almost no one who reads your guide is going to migrate over to Tuple unless it's literally a guide about Tuple. Um, and I, I, I know this for a fact. I've written a bunch of stuff and every time I'm surprised at how hard I have to push to get people to go and um, hit up uh, my agency's website from my guides pages. And my guides are read by hundreds of thousands of people and only tens of people are clicking through. So I had to think pretty deeply about how to do two things at once, pitch the thing I'm trying to get them to do, which is go to bellcurve.com, sign up, or rather reach out for a sales call, and not, uh, not jeopardize my integrity. So I'm trying on julian.com to actually first and foremost build my own brand, not build a conduit to getting people to pay me at bellcurve.com. And I take that so seriously. Uh, if, if, I, if you told me a, a piece of copy that will get twice as many people to click through to bellcurve.com from julian.com, but I was uncomfortable with it, I wouldn't care less. I wouldn't think twice. I would not use it. That's me, though. But I do think that's actually a wise thing most people should follow because it builds a brand for the long term that people trust. And when you do your thing post-bell curve or post-tuple, you haven't burnt them as being this, this glorified sales guy who didn't actually have their best interests at heart, right? So I, I can dive into that, but I realized that was an epically long ramble with no pause. So I'm going to pause. Before, okay. Yeah, in case there's anything you want me to, want me to yeah, detour on. Well, so first of all, I think A-B testing the intros to content stuff is 
an awesome idea. I hadn't heard that before. That's interesting. I probably can't support that at the traffic levels that I will be at, but I don't know. I mean, it, we'll, we'll see. So I have, a, I have a friend who has had some good success promoting content as a sort of like to cold Facebook traffic, where it's like the first thing they ask for is like, hey, read this blog post. And then like if they click through to the blog post, now you have like an interesting retargeting group for people that are like, oh, he's at least, they're at least kind of interested in this kind of thing. Maybe we can next get them on like a webinar or something. Um, but I guess if, if all I have is content, I don't have like a second barrel to fire. Yeah, and that is a definitely um, effective strategy if your uh, user metrics essentially can afford it. Because you're basically, mm-hmm. as right. you know, paying for the prospecting and you're paying for the retargeting. So you're, you're double dipping and it's expensive. So hopefully you have a good LTV. But um, right. to your point, though, I have none right now. Yeah, to your point. Yeah, if you don't have the second barrel, then um, I, I, would, I would probably hold off. Intuitively, it feels a little silly to spend money right now. Like, to me, it's almost like one of the strengths of this content marketing is that it costs my time, but not really anything else. And so throwing ad dollars at this seems a little weird. Uh, my, my reflex is um, if I'm going to choose to spend my time on something, a lot of my time on something, like it took me a thousand hours to write and rewrite the marketing guide three times, I'm going to thereafter leverage everything I can to get the most value out of it. But you have a, you have a thing to sell to people at the end of the day. I'm just thinking of, ad, of ads in particular, where it's like if I could see us in the point, where, like when we reach the point where it's like, oh yeah, there is a product you can then go buy. Then yes, putting a, a subscriber on our email list has a like pretty clear calculable ROI. Whereas right now it's just kind of like, well, like there's there's no, there's zero ROI immediately. I'd have to guess at what it is. So like every dollar that goes out feels a little bit sketchy or something. Absolutely. No, I'm with you. I, I wouldn't. Um, it goes back to me earlier saying like, you don't need a growth strategy right now. You just need to sit down right, right essentially. Um, and then you can worry about how to better distribute the writing um, when the product, when you're at a place where you can accept you know, more batches of test users and so forth. It might be good if you have a couple like short ideas on the non-paid promotion of this content that I'm making. So there's the unsexy option because it's just hard to make happen, which is getting on the front page of Hacker News, right? And a quick note on that. The reason I even bring it up, despite the difficulty of achieving that, um, given how many things are submitted to HN every day, is the just absurdly like asymmetric burst of traffic you get from it. Like there's nothing else in tech where you're going to get 40 to 80,000, depends on the time of day and whatever, but like interested, engaged, good time on site visits. It's just crazy. So if you can pull it off, you should pull it off. So I would be remiss if I didn't suggest how people can pull it off. So two strong pieces of advice, uh, both of which are very much in keeping with how the HN moderators look at their own products. So this is not trickery or anything. Uh, The first is never ask anyone to upvote. It actually immediately gets your account flagged behind the scenes. They have a super sophisticated vote ring detector. So if you ask someone to vote on your post, uh, most, at least if you've done it a couple times, like the third time you do it, they can tell who's voting for who. They flag your account. And at least when I last, when I last checked in with them, uh, when you thereafter submit stories, they actually get penalized in some way. Uh, like there's a point reduction or your stories might get killed and so forth. So that's one thing or it might just be on a per story basis, but it hurts you. Second thing is this is, this is what I found the most interesting when I was trying to figure out 
uh, how to get to the top of Hacker News. Um, I went to Algolia because they power Hacker News' search. And I ranked all the Hacker News posts in the last two years by most upvotes. And I looked at the first 20 to 30 stories and was trying to identify the pattern and how they were titled. Because think about it, on Hacker News, and the advice I'm giving now applies to Hacker News, Reddit, Designer News, you know, anywhere else, any other aggregator. So it's worth diving into for a moment. It also applies to getting on TechCrunch, which I can go into in a moment. When you're on the front page of Hacker News, what do you have to go off of as to whether you should click through? You literally only have the title of the story, and they'll also show you the domain. That's it. The domain will mean nothing to most people unless you're already a known quantity, like Stripe.com. And so it all comes down to the title. So I wanted to find what is the what is the syntax, the keyword usage, and here's what I found that was very continues to tickle me, and I love telling people this, which is on average the type of title that reaches the top of Hacker News is one that expresses deep annoyance and grief for the state of things in tech. So when someone says something like pair programming is utterly broken. That is the type of title that reaches the top of Hacker News, like clockwork, um, especially if you can be a bit more specific and explain what makes it broken. It's fodder for clicks. Um, and there's probably a whole discussion we could have on why people react to that stuff, but not really relevant at the moment. But so just th those two pieces of advice, write a really good piece of content, title it extremely well, submit it, don't ask people to upvote it, and then you can resubmit. Uh, they don't, the moderators do not mind. They'll sometimes invite you to resubmit. Just wait a couple weeks, try it again. They know it's hard to hit the front page. They want you to get a real shot at your content if it's actually good content and that's what matters. Actually, one last thing on Hacker News. I don't think it's a bad thing I'm dwelling on this because I've gotten on the front page a few times and each time, it, honestly, it, it, it skyrocketed everything for me. So last thing I want to say is um, the actual on-page experience when you submit to Hacker News matters a lot. If you have ads, if you have spammy, weird sales pitches, if you have a giant call to action at the top of your page, if you have one of those things that pops up when the page loads and says, hey, want to subscribe to my newsletter? The people at HN hate that. They will downvote or flag your post. Literally, go have a little flag in your URL, like, you know, question mark HN, and that's how you should link to your post. And when you detect people are coming from HN, uh, use JavaScript, like, you know, extract the query parameters and literally delete all the elements off your page that have garbage uh, sales fluff, pop-ups, <laughs> random crap. And then just do that all the time because that's better anyway. Yeah, exa <laughs> exactly. Just do it anyway. Exactly. Um, anyway, I didn't really answer your question. You asked me to keep it short, but essentially you were asking, uh, <laughs> you know, how would one get the word out about content marketing, right? So let me, I guess I'll just rapid fire some stuff really quickly then. And again, though, like HN is usually such a big one. The, the, the second one is SEO, but there, there's, a, there's a conflict here between writing epic content, which often necessitates long, deep, nitty-gritty content, and actually doing well on SEO. They, they, they do not support each other counterintuitively because I have really long pages that are super in-depth. People email me and tweet me regularly saying this was the best thing I read on the topic. Thank you. It, it explained it. Um, so I know it's effective, but when I actually use those same pages as SEO fodder, they don't do well because people coming from Google want to jump in, find the quick answer and bounce. 
And when they open a few tabs in conjunction with yours, if they see the other page that's a third as long, the average person is not like myself or like Ben or like the people listening to this podcast. The average person is not looking to geek out and go extremely in depth on most things. There's a reason why BuzzFeed style news took over the New York Times in terms of popularity. So um, what you have to do, and I'm not saying everyone, but the average person, yeah. basically what I'm trying to get at is for SEO, you either have to compromise the UX of your guide, meaning you have to take your really well categorized, cleanly positioned three to seven pages and break it down into like 30 mini pages with really clickbaity titles that are appropriate for SEO. You either have to go in that direction with a concerted focus, like go big or go home. That's how you're going to go and get that SEO traffic. Uh, or stick to your guns, build epic content with extremely good UX where all the right stuff is on the right page. You don't have to click 40 times through a slideshow or whatever and have a harder time with SEO. And so what I try to do is I stick to the ladder, I stick to my guns because I care more about my brand than I do about getting SEO traffic. And what I do to still try to get some SEO juice because I know how important it is and because to rank things for you, by the way, number one for me is SEO traffic source. Number two is probably Hacker News and Designer News and Reddit, it being mentioned on there. And number three is word of mouth. So now you see why I'm spending so much time talking about Hacker News and now SEO. So just really briefly, um, how do you split the difference for SEO for your content marketing guy? How do you stick to your guns and actually make it SEO um, uh, supportive? Essentially, it comes down to the page's um, actual URL uh, the page's meta title, like the document title, uh, the header, and then the subheaders in the body. Uh, it all comes down to that. You basically need to be piggybacking off of the hardest, uh, like most competitive terms, which is counterintuitive SEO advice. You usually want to go for the low-hanging fruit. But because your content is actually better than all of the other stuff out there, because it's in-depth, it's awesome, you stuck to your guns, you built great stuff, it'll take a while but Google will eventually realize through people's behaviors of visiting your site and, and not hitting back in their browser to go look somewhere else that you actually are the best. And so what I'm getting at succinctly is when you have awesome content, buck the typical SEO advice, making a thousand little pages, all clickbaity stuff. And instead, don't go for the low hanging fruit, go for the biggest head terms. So on Julian.com, I have a guide on how to build muscle according to the science. And the hardest thing for me to go after is how to build muscle. Well, go ahead and Google how to build muscle. I'm in the first couple pages and my guide is epically long, but it's taken forever to get there. And it's gonna take forever more to actually crawl my way up to, to the first half of the first page. But it's a much sounder strategy that's in keeping with my methodology um, and over time continues to rise. So anyway, I'll pause there, but I feel pretty strongly about that advice. Yeah, no, I dig it. Lots of knowledge bombs in there. I'm into it. We're getting a little bit on the long side, so I might, um, I might want to wrap up now. I think. Awesome. So just to zoom out for a second, sounds like we're pretty much on the same page as far as where I'm pointed, which is cool. It would have been interesting radio if you'd come on and said, "No, no, you're all wrong. Do something completely different." But still, uh, it's good to have some validation, and uh, I appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Yeah, my pleasure. Now I'm self-conscious about my rambling, but uh, hopefully, hopefully some of that was useful. Uh, totally. Yeah, I, I would have stopped you if it hadn't been.
That's my job as the host. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's reassuring. All right. If you want the show notes for this episode, it is artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Oh, and I didn't give you... Ah, terrible, terrible hosting. I mean, we've, we've plugged your stuff a fair amount, but is there anything else you want to send people towards? If you go to bellcurve.com, we are now training people to do everything we do on growth. So we've, we've actually stopped signing clients for the most part and just trying to train some growth marketers of the future. Nice. Awesome. So go check that out if it sounds good. I think that's it for us. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Yeah. So, so where are you at currently with, with, with Tuple? Um, it's going well. I'm honestly having a super good time. Um, we are where we're at. So we're, we took a couple of wrong turns, not wrong turns. We've done some explorations that we've decided are not quite the right answer for solving this problem. And so we are, we've kind of thrown out some things that we built. Uh, but I think we're finally at the right level of abstraction. We're at the, we have the right language and the right tool set, I think. And so we feel really optimistic about the technical future. Like the whole, the whole game of this thing is like, how can we make it really, really, really fast? And so we kept discarding approaches that were not quite fast enough, but we think we're on to something now that will be fast enough. By fast, do you mean so, you, do you mean UX from the perspective of the user? Or do you mean like iterating quickly to order an awesome product fast? The former. So the, the killer thing in real-time screen sharing is latency, like how long it takes for the thing to react to what you're doing. So... Um, like if you, if you're trying to type on someone else's computer and you don't see your keystrokes quickly, like it's brutal. And so we have to make a thing that's really quick and, um, yeah, that's going, I feel good about that now, our approach on that. So that's part of the magic. It's not just the UX, but it's also the speed. So I was, I was always like an admiring onlooker of screen hero and now Slack video screen sharing. Because I, I recognized pretty quickly how awesome Screen Hero was compared to the garbage of that was Skype. And so yeah. and, and as someone who's not technical from like a compression standpoint and all that stuff, um, I didn't understand how they pulled that off. Um, my guess was they were, um, they were putting like more of the burden on, the, on like my computer to do a ton of process, like really tons of heavy processing because my, my fan would go crazy to compress harder to get the file size down to improve latency. Is, how are you doing? Are you actually going deep? Because my, my default assumption was that you're going to do something like WebRTC thing and call it a day, but uh, that might not even be the right. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about this, so I'm really curious. How do you do this? Um, I would say we're not going to call it a day for quite a while. Um, there's, no, there's no easy approach that is fast enough. So like, you can spin up a screen sharing session with like 30 lines of JavaScript. Uh, because there's like WebRTC built into Chrome, for example. And that is fine. And that's what most of these tools out there do, is they do the thing that's fine. And if you have a really fast connection and you're not too far from each other, it's like pretty fine. Um, but it falls down pretty fast when your network is flaky, which basically all networks are. Like it seems like all networks actually get faster and slower over time. Like you have these spikes and drops and whatnot. And so what Screen Hero did, so I don't, no one really knows what Screen Hero did except for Screen Hero, um, but they, they went a different path and they did a, th a much more custom stack. So like, and they just sweated all of the different phases of 
this process where it's like, how fast can you capture the screen? How fast can you turn that into like a, a, the format that you need to send it over the wire? How little data can you send? How quickly can you decode it? How fast can you paint it? All of those things are like, you know, milliseconds here, milliseconds there. And they just were sweating those details in a way that no one else was. And so that's what we're hoping to do too. Dude, I geek out so hard on that. That was my life. A whole year of my life was trying to figure out how to squeeze every remaining piece of performance out of like the graphics rendering on browsers to build the animation engine velocity. That was literally all I did. Literally all I did. I didn't work. I wasn't being paid for a year of my life. I was like, I'm going to make the fastest thing possible. And so I geek out so hard on, you know, getting those extra milliseconds. So, so does this mean that, so part of my lack of your coding knowledge, but does this mean that you are actually diving into like compression algorithms and going beyond JavaScript and putting together like a native app or? Yes, very much so. Um, we actually, yeah, so we started writing a, an app, the app in Swift and then discovered that we wanted even more control over the WebRTC library. And so now we are rewriting a big portion of it in C++. Dude, this is so cool. Okay, so here's where my brain goes when I'm trying to think about what is the 80-20 of getting hyper-fast pair programming. So my brain, and you know, as you can tell, like I haven't gone through the, your full journey yet, which now I'm now I have to after doing this recording. But um, my brain goes to don't do any screen sharing, just do a, a, a browser instance where you preload um, like a shared JavaScript file, like a shared IDE, and um, also in that browser preload whatever accompanying text files or imagery or documents you want to reference. And so you're basically in real time working on the same synchronized web page instance, right? And there's no actual video compression. That would be my guess for the fastest possible ways. Has that, was that considered? Um, uh, somewhat, yes. Not really, though. So there's there's an experience that we want to offer that is incompatible with that. So that, you're right that like there there are a couple things you can do that are really fast and snappy if you don't care about one thing that we care about a lot, which is using someone's entire system as if you were sitting right next to them. So it's like their browser, their terminal, any third party tools they have. Like, like like for real full remote desktop access. And so is the ethos there that you want people to behave organically and act naturally and pair program in the comfort of what they're used to, like their normal environment? Is that sort of the approach or why does it matter? Um, because so like I actually have a bunch of different tools that I use that would chafe to not have. Uh, and like to just be used to coding in a to be coding in a browser together would not be a development experience I would be interested in. Cool, yeah, that makes sense. That's awesome. Um, I think one, I think Superhuman um, uh, is an e- I think is a native email app that essentially is like email's too slow. Let's rethink this from both the UX perspective and also the actual you know painting milliseconds rendering graphics perspective. And so it, it was it was the marriage of, of great UX and great technical speed and I, i'm betting that you you have a similar philosophy then i mean i hope so i hope we can achieve that kind of thing like we so we have a, a very challenging ux thing as well so this 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 product is hard for two, a couple a bunch of reasons but the the two big ones are the the latency thing is, is a hard problem um and then the other thing is uh your computer doesn't really want to be controlled by two people simultaneously like there really is only one mouse and if you want to give people the impression that there are two mice 
there's no good way to do there's no clean way to do that it's all like how do you take this thing which is totally a hack and make it not feel like a hack mm, that's interesting i wonder if you can also um sort of like how gmail now will predictively complete sentences I wonder if that's also a component of the NID experience. Like if you're entering the function name, if you're entering the word function and you've typed FU, uh, <laughs> FU so far, then it, it just, you, you jump ahead on the, on the, on the other person's computer and assume that's what it is. I mean, I, I'd wonder what sort of like app level hackery there is to, you know? Yeah. So I think we'll probably have no app level hackery because we don't know what apps people are going to use. Like we want to not care what they're using. So this is what like Screen Hero did where they're just like, this is just like really, really good remote desktop control. And so like whatever you've got, like you're going to get that just from far away. And that, that I think is totally the right approach. It's not the only approach, but it's, it's, it's the, the, that's the kind of pairing and the product I want to create and support. Yeah, something broad, a platform. That's rad. Well, when you do get to the point of um, launching and uh, you're ready to open up to the world, I'm here to uh, be as useful as I can. Awesome. That, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I hopefully, hopefully someday I will need your, your growth skills to like pour a bunch of gas on this fire. So I, I look forward to hopefully needing that. Yeah, and you know what? Um, B2B stuff targeting en- uh, engineers. There's a lot of very proven track records or like pathways rather uh, as to how similar companies with similar audiences have pulled it off like it's there are so many things you can do and the only like if i had to conclude on a piece of uh on 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 like a warning it's to pull off all of those pathways if you do care about scaling into a big company one day if that's something you care about um i don't really okay well then it does well i guess i'll finish the thought but it's irrelevant then (laughs) which is essentially make sure you charge a lot per user Mm. yeah but well I do. I wouldn't mind making a bunch for users, so that's. I might just do that anyway. Nice, awesome, dude. Well, yeah, but yeah, we're we're there's three of us, and like we're all pretty philosophically uh, aligned right now, which is like we're not we're not interested in a, in a big company. We want something that supports us and makes us comfortable and is fun to work on. Yeah, absolutely. Although I don't think that that has to be, that has to be at the expense of something that um, can also let you retire young if you want to, right? Uh, totally i'm I'm open to that possibility shocker <laughs> yeah yeah um like i honestly think once you're at a point where you're making a good lifestyle living i feel like the only thing between you and actually doubling or tripling that which is still fairly modest so that you can just retire young have savings is just being is just the willingness to break the momentum of how comfortable you are just doing the same routine every day and actually saying how do i pause this momentum how do i break the inertia and actually get my hands dirty doing really tiring, repetitive growth crap for a year. And if you're willing to make that transition, it's going to pay off, you know? And actually, that's why people come to me is they're like, we don't want to do this. So maybe. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I looked at your guide. I was like, man, this looks like a lot of work. I'm, I get why people <laughs> outsource this. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting just how many people do. Um, like uh, a, lot of our, a lot of companies we work with like, just raised a couple million. And their instinct is not to hire a growth marketer. It's to outsource it, which is always interesting to me because you would think that growth should be a core competency of any startup. Um, yeah. but, but what they what, what the founders often choose to do, though, is they think to themselves, 
the money that I just raised is an excuse to focus purely on product and other things and, and, and outsource growth and bring it back in-house as a competency in the future. Um, I don't even know that I agree with it, even though it's what essentially drives us leads. Um, you know, I, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't know that I even agree with it. Yeah. So, yeah. So you, you said in the, the episode that you were, uh, your focus was on training people and you're pausing, taking new clients. How come? Yeah. So the thing about clients, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess that, that says enough, right? But uh-huh. It, it, it's it's a real lifestyle killer because you're obviously at the mercy of servicing someone else, and the repeated sales cycle, um, and then the inevitable fires that pop up. None of these things are things where you go, "Oh, I can't wait for my next sales call or my next fire to pop up." Um, and so I, I just find that if if I can replace clients with products. Um, there's a formula where if I have a product that makes half a million a year, that lets me get rid of X many clients. Right. So that is literally the transitionary period I'm at where we're, we're able, I'm very appreciative of our ability to piggyback off of client revenue to uh, sustain their accounts, make them happy, and also transition to building a product that we're deeply passionate about, which is back to the thing I mentioned a moment ago, just training people how to make growth their own competency. And we're going to be training a lot of our own clients. We're going to hand them the keys and say, you don't need us anymore. Uh, And I think that is, um, never mind like the ethics of it, but I think it's much more exciting for me to empower people to kick ass uh, than it is to just repeat, uh, rinse and repeat doing it for them. So I'm really stoked on that. And, and, and the amount of people who need to be trained is no less than the amount of people who need to outsource their growth work, you know? So there's a real market there. Nice. Cool. Have you like launched that training? Is it, is it in progress? Yeah. So it, it goes live. Let's see. So it goes live in two days. Um, oh, nice. Yeah. And we already have a bunch of paying students. I'm so stoked. It's so crazy to think that like we are going to have an alumni network one day. You know, we're going to have people who went through bell curve training, like one goes to, you know, Dartmouth College or something and they have the alumni dinners like that is so cool to me. I'm so stoked to be part of what will be a family of people exchanging growth tactics. And like they're not like aspiring. I mean, we welcome aspiring entrepreneurs, but a lot of these people are actually founders of venture backed companies and um, they're in the weeds right now. And it's going to be so dope. Like basically they're going to work on projects for their own company. And then we're going to give them feedback. Like their sample projects will be their own product that they'll be working on. And we'll give them real feedback. We'll do real-time chat and Slack. It's going to be so fun. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked. Yeah, I, li- I like that. I saw that on the, in the description. That made a lot of sense to me. Like you're, the projects you're doing are the thing you're doing at work. So it doesn't like take away from work. And it's, it's, it's like by, by definition valuable to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, my, my partner at uh, Bell Curve, his name's Asher, he um, ha- has a pretty headstrong philosophy on growth that is... Oh, I think we just lost connection. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I think um, appear.in dropped us. Anyhow, my, my partner Asher uh, has a pretty headstrong philosophy on how to teach. And he was actually teaching uh, like thousands of engineers at um, App Academy, uh, uh, boot camp in SF. And so he would actually love tuple uh, in the sense of he's obsessed with the most effective ways to teach people stuff 
And so I've learned a lot about how to communicate based on him. This is a bit of a tangent, but he, he does these, he uses these Socratic methods as much as he can on me. And he, he always reminds me to use it on him. So he's like, Julian, you're trying to get me to understand something, pause. And instead of telling me what to do, ask me questions so I can arrive at the conclusion myself naturally, and it'll stick forever. And so these sorts of insights he has, he's bringing to this training. And so we're taking our growth, our combined growth expertise, taking Asher's experience at Minerva and App Academy for how to teach um, and combining it something rad. And so I'm very passionate about project-based learning, essentially, is the point I'm getting back to, which is um, really the only way, I think, to learn anything. And I'm sure you know that with Tuple. I mean, you can't, you can't learn in a vacuum. Right. Yeah, it won't stick. Yeah. So what, what's, the, what's not the motivation behind Tuple, like not what's the problem, what's the, not what's the hopeful product market fit, but emotionally, uh, why are you pursuing it? What are, what are you passionate about there? Emotionally, why am I pursuing it? I mean, so one answer to that is that in my career of being a developer, I have never learned as much as fast as when I paired with people. Like that, I had this like total knee of the curve moment where my learning took off, where I um, was sitting next to my boss basically every day pairing on rails. And that was like one of the best times of my life, basically, professionally was because I was learning so much. Like, I, I've yet to find anything that's as good as that. Oh, that's that's so rad. Yeah, I, I don't even... That is such... I love then that you're building something that will give other people eureka moments. Like, how yeah, totally. beautiful is that? Yeah, I, I mean, that's... And the, and the thing is, like, it's it gives people who couldn't get it because they're, like, not able to sit next to people and have that experience. So, so. I TA'd a boot camp, um, <laughs> a, a coding boot camp in Vancouver, and I saw the students on the entirety of the spectrum, those who could not wrap their head around what a function is, input-output, those who kind of thought they could, struggled, finally got it, clicked totally, and now are crushing it, those who got it immediately. Um, and the, the clear takeaway was, um, if you want everyone to succeed, there has to be a human element. The people who were struggling the most were not able to get over the struggle by being told, go retry the project, go reread the learning. That was not at all how they got over the struggles. It was always because there was one really compassionate TA who sat down, pushed everything else aside, said, okay, it's me and you, and we're going to dive in here together. And they didn't, yeah. they didn't let the day end until the other, the student actually understood. And that is that, you know, that's a beautiful thing to be able to offer, uh, as a service in some, you're not offering that as a service, but you're, you're enabling it. You're enabling it. Enabling it. Yep. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's, it's, it is a nice thing that I, I like, I'm working on a product that if it works, will bring more of a thing that I think is awesome into the world. That feels really good. Exactly. Exactly. And, and just, you probably know this, but just but as an open as a fellow open source person, at least when open source is curriculum and so forth, um, there's this ethos in the open source community that it is antithetical to the notion of open source or the notion of benevolent contributions to your industry, to your community, to go ahead and aggressively monetize it or aggressively grow. It is not antithetical at all. If you build something amazing, 
the if, if paid acquisition for if literally annoying Facebook ads are the is the thing that gets ten times as many people to do pair programming because they hear of tuple through annoying Facebook ads, the net effect on the world is very much positive. Uh, to have all those other bands going, Eureka! I just learned Ruby way quicker, and that changed my life. And now I want to be a programmer. I want to build amazing shit for other people. So, with Velocity, when I was building an animation engine, um, I remember I had some dude on GitHub, some like the not like the, the, one of the main people on jQuery. They were they were proposing merging Velocity into jQuery to replace jQuery's internal anim animate function. And one guy from the Jake, so everyone was really gung-ho, like the, uh, the chairman and all these people. And then one guy on the team uh, drops the following comment on Git, on Git in, in the issue. He's like, I don't actually know that velocity is, is velocity's success is a function of anything other than Julian having, having done a ton of marketing. And that hurt, right? Because the truth always hurts the most. And I thought to myself, like, there is definitely truth to that, meaning a lot of other people probably built really cool shit, but didn't, didn't hustle as a marketer like I did. But I can tell you this, all of Uber, Samsung, Microsoft, Twitter, and, and you th uh, literally hundreds of thousands of people would not still be using Velocity if it weren't legitimately good. And the reason I'm saying this to you is if people are legitimately loving Tuple, then there is nothing wrong ethically, uh, emotionally, whatever, with growing into something bigger than just a lifestyle business. Um, and I, I feel strongly about that. And I, so I, I just wanted to take a moment to express that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not going to... I don't see us like pumping the brakes, you know? Like, I, I would... We would... I. I I can't imagine us raising a ton of money and trying to hire a bunch of people and like try to make this thing enormous. But if if we make a thing that we're really proud of and feel really great about, I'm gonna want to get it in front of a lot of people. And so yeah, we'll we'll see. I, it's it's also hard to predict how I'm gonna feel in the future. But like that's that's where we are now. Is like I think it's partly just like our ambitions for now are small because it's like the the future is so far away. Where it's like man, if this could pay my rent, that would be that sure would be great because it's really not right now. So I think that's just maybe once it's paying the rent, it's like okay, now I want to pay like a lot more than the rent. So we'll see. Yeah, uh, and, and I'll say one last thing then, because not to beat this drum too much, but um, as a direct response to that, to reduce like one's nerves about the vibe, the market viability or the monetization viability of what they're working on, they're like oh, am, I, am I spending, am I, am I putting my head down, toiling away for months in the darkness? with a good shot of not actually being able to turn this into even a lifestyle business, if those are the thoughts that somebody has, one of the most, one of the most effective ways to overcome those thoughts is to self-empower to know how to grow the damn thing so that you are really confident by the time of launch that you will be able to get yourself X many paying users that you need for it to be an interesting business. And that, that's effectively what I hope I have done on Julian.com with the marketing guide. Um, mm -hmm. And there are, there, there are a bunch of things I would, if I, were, if I rewrote that guide specifically for you, if you were my audience of one, and I was trying to explain to Tuple how to kick ass in all the categories I cover in that guide, mm -hmm. the, the, the primary thing I would change is I would introduce my experience marketing B2B apps toward engineers. 
uh, which is something we can go into in the future. And then I would also talk pretty heavily about um, uh, baking in the natural sharing component of Tuple. So if, for example, you have a feature native to the app that really feels native, like it feels like it's in the DNA of Tuple, where there's mm-hmm. like uh, some sort of one-to-many pair programming, something that allows you to sort of actually achieve some sort of network effect, some sort of virality uh, beyond just one-to-one. Um, that is the sort of way I would be rethinking my product roadmap to support growth. Um, because then, as you know, if you pay to acquire one user, suddenly they bring in two others and then your, your cost of acquisition plummets and suddenly it opens up the financial viability of Facebook ads or something. Um, so mm-hmm. like, um, and, and this is not like I, Clearbit, Heap Analytics, Webflow, tons of other companies I've worked with. I made, uh, I mean, I don't, it wasn't single-handedly me, but I worked on the team that made their Facebook ads or other stuff become profitable and be a huge driver for them. So it's very much doable, very much doable. Yeah. Well, that'll have to be a future conversation. That'd be a good thing to cover. I look forward to it. Yeah. Cool, man. All right. I think I'm gonna let you go. It's getting late here. <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you. Have, have a good time. Yeah, likewise, dude. Have a good one.